Well, good morning, everyone. I am excited to be here today, and this has been a very exciting last few days and a next week for me. Uh, later today, my wife and I are going to uh, fly away to Connecticut. Unfortunately, it's not all pleasure. I'm going to be working during the week, but she gets to go with me on a business trip for the very first time, and so we're excited about that, having a week away from uh, kids and puppies and uh, responsibilities at home, so it's going to be fun. But uh, the last three days prior to today, I had the opportunity to spend about 30 hours witnessing some of the meanest and fiercest and most nasty competition. And I'm talking about Tennessee high school basketball. <laughs> and I'm talking about the fans, not the people on the floor. I tell you what, I am so glad to be a preacher and not a referee. Because for 30 hours, I listened to fans just uh, give instant feedback to their performance. It would be like, you know, I'm preaching and all of a sudden, uh, somebody in the, the back row going, that's terrible, Pastor Chip. You know, you, you need to go home. You're awful. You know, that, that's the way referees have to deal with life. And, and so, you know, I was really glad that, that I'm not a referee. So I, I did wear stripes this morning, but they're not black and white. So anyway, uh, but basketball is exciting and competition is exciting. Uh, but what else is exciting to me is putting together puzzles. I don't know how many of you, I mean, I'm talking about jigsaw puzzles because I don't get into that. I, I've never been a big uh, uh, trying to figure out this little tiny piece in 3,000. That's not my thing. But I like to be able to put together puzzles of, of how things fit together in life. And so a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Aaron said, hey, can you preach on this particular day and uh, here are the scriptures from the lectionary for the first Sunday in Lent. My first reaction was like, oh, you know, whenever someone else gives you the, the scripture and the message and says, you know, here, you need to preach on this, I'm always a little bit like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to, to put something together. But I looked at it and I got very excited very quickly because the scriptures that uh, showed up in the lectionary for today uh, all fit together, the Old Testament and the New Testament, in a very special way. And so I, I hope that you'll uh, get as much out of this as, as I do in putting, in, uh, putting this message together today, because it's really cool to see how there's Scripture that appears in the New Testament and the Old Testament and different places all along through the Bible, and how that they, they all fit together. You can sometimes read a, a section of Scripture, and you're like, that's, that's really great. But then when you pull in some other pieces from here and from there that help to explain it, all of a sudden it becomes new and it reveals something completely different to you that maybe you've never seen before. So I was talking about school and I'm kind of curious, is there anybody in here who is a younger sibling who had the exact same teacher sometime in their school time that an older sibling had? If you are, raise your hand, a few of you. All right, well, I imagine at some point in time, there was a comparison made. Maybe it wasn't to your face. It may have been in the teacher's conference room or something, but, you know, it was like, you know, that Tommy Kirkpatrick, you know, older brother or sister, whoever it was, they were so much better student than Tommy is. Or, you know, maybe, maybe you know, not giving him enough credit, maybe it was, wow, Tommy's so much better student than his older brother or sister. And it's so great to see, you know, he's, he's the sweet one. He's the nice one. He's the studious one. Yeah, he, I, I'm, I'm speaking his language now. But somewhere along the line, when a younger sibling comes along, there's that opportunity to make a comparison between the younger and the older. And right or wrong, we do it. 
Even as parents sometimes, you know, like, oh, well, this is my studying child and this is my athletic child. And, you know, we, we make those comparisons. And sometimes it's, it's a good comparison. Sometimes it's uh, maybe not so much. But there's a comparison in the Bible that I really want us to look at today. And it is the idea of a first Adam and a second Adam. You're like, wait a minute, I have studied the Bible, and I know about the Adam at the beginning of the Bible, but who is the second Adam? So I want us to dig into the scripture this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45 through 47. And it starts out saying, so it is written, the first Adam became a living being. So we know about that Adam. That Adam was the Adam of Adam and Eve, uh, created from the dust of the ground at the beginning in Genesis 1. And so then the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth and made out of dust. The second man is from heaven. Well, hopefully it doesn't take too much uh, puzzle putting together for you to figure out who the second Adam is already. The second Adam is Jesus. And he's often referred to as that second Adam. And so uh, as we look at the scripture today, we're going to be looking at these two different Adams and asking the question, which Adam? And it'll all make sense in the end here. But let's look at the first Adam first. Uh, We are going to look in Genesis, and we're going to read in chapter 2 and then in chapter 3, starting in verse 15 of chapter 2. It says, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. So he had a job. He was responsible. He was a leader. He was someone who was supposed to be taking care of something on the behalf of God. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So at this point, Adam has one rule. He only has one thing that he's got to do, and that is to not eat from one tree. So a pretty simple list of do's and don'ts, right? If if all of you only had one rule that you had to follow each day, yeah, it'd be pretty easy, right? Just one rule. So we're going to skip ahead one chapter in verse 1 of chapter 3. The tempter comes. It says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, now Eve is on the picture here, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. And Satan answers, the tempter answers Eve, says, No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for attaining wisdom. And so she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, Adam, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together to make loincloths for themselves. It's important to note here that Eve was not in this alone when she was tempted and took of the fruit. It says right in the scripture in chapter 3 that Adam was with her. Adam was right there. Adam was supposed to be, what, the leader. He was supposed to be the head of the the household. He was supposed to be in charge of the garden, watching over it. And he's standing there just letting Eve talk to this serpent. A little bit weird, you know, a talking serpent. But he doesn't stop her or try to, to persuade her to not break the rule. The one rule. Eve, we've got one rule. Let's not break it. We got it good. 
We have a garden. We can eat from anything. But Adam, being the first Adam, wasn't prepared for the temptation that would come his way that particular day. Let's look at the New Testament in Matthew chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I would be hungry after 40 hours. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But he answered, It is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil left him. And immediately angels came and began to serve him. So we have two Adams here. We have a first Adam and a second Adam. And we have a tempter in both stories. A tempter who is trying to deceive Adam and Eve in the first story and trying to deceive Jesus and get him to do something that will be sin in the second story. So what made the second Adam different from the first? We want to answer that question today. Why did the tempter succeed against the first Adam, but ultimately fail against the second? And which Adam are you prepared to be? Now that was just the introduction, so we're now to the three points, all right? Those were, that was just freebie information. But I, I've got a couple of quotes that I want to put up on the screen. The first one, if you'll put it up there, it is, says, and this is, is something I just read this week, so I want you to, to think about it and think about who may have said this. I see no hope for the future of our people. If they are dependent on the frivolous youth of today, for certainly all youth are reckless beyond words. When I was a boy, we were taught to be discreet and respectful of elders, but the present youth are exceedingly wise and impatient of restraint. Okay. Sounds about right, right? All right, let's look at the next quote. Saw this one again this week. What is happening to our young people? They disrespect their elders. They disobey their parents. That never happens, right? They ignore the law. They riot in the streets, inflated with wild notions. Their morals are decaying. What is to become of them? All right, any guesses? Who said these two quotes? Any, any ideas? Just yell it out. Your Facebook post. All right. Come on. A group of this size. You've got to have some guess. Who do you think said these quotes? You're, you're pretty close. Pretty close. The first quote is from 8th century B.C. by a man named Hesiod. And the second quote was from the 5th century B.C. by a man named Plato. My point, and you can write this one in your review, there's nothing new under the sun. People have been saying the same things for centuries and millennia. It has been going on for as long as there have been people on the earth that this type of thing, this sentiment about youth has, has been there. Since there's been a teenager, there's been someone who's been complaining about a teenager. It's just, it's the way life is. 
And so this same type of, of idea of nothing new under the sun, uh, we read about nothing new under the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're not going to go there and read that scripture right now. But the idea that there's nothing new is so true. I want us to jump to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And this, will, this is one of those scriptures where we're going to start to piece things together. We read from the old, we read from the new, we've seen these two different scriptures, but here's how they all begin to blend. In chapter uh, 2, verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, with its lust, is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever." I don't know if you noticed or not during the Genesis uh, story, and we'll go back and look at it in a second, but as Eve and Adam were tempted, they were tempted with these same three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the lust of pride of life. And Jesus was tempted with these exact same three things. I've got a secret for you. The devil has nothing new to throw at you. He's been doing the exact same thing from the beginning of time to the time of Jesus till now. He hasn't gotten any new tricks. He doesn't know any new lies. He doesn't know anything that we can't get prepared to come against by just reading our Bibles. In Genesis, if you open up to chapter 3, verses 6, it says, The woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, delightful to look at, lust of the eyes, and it was desirable for attaining wisdom, pride of one's lifestyle. Those are the three things that 1 John identifies for us as the three sins that have, have uh, plagued us for all generations. We jump to Matthew chapter 4 through 3. Four, three. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of Man, tell these stones to become bread, lust of the flesh. He knew he was hungry, and so he tried to tempt him with his flesh. Again, the devil, in chapter verses 8 and 9, took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kings, kingdoms of the world. Lust of the eyes. Showed him what he could have if he would just bow down to him. Then in verse 5 and 6, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The pride of one's lifestyle or the pride of position. I am so concerned about position in life that I am willing to sacrifice my integrity. I am so concerned about making sure that I look important in life that I am willing to sacrifice my family or I am willing to sacrifice the right thing to do. That's what the pride of one's lifestyle is all about. And as you can see, the devil used the same three things with Adam and Eve that he tried to use with Jesus. You know what? Besides nothing new under the sun as far as the tricks that he uses, there's nothing new under the sun that you're going through that somebody else has not gone through. If I were to ask for a show of hands, which I won't, ask for a show of hands of anybody who in here who's ever done something that they knew was wrong, but they thought to themselves, they had a, the actual thought, I can't tell anybody about this because they will think that I am an awful person because surely I am the only person who has ever succumbed to this temptation. Come on, people. You're, if you're honest with yourself, you've had that thought because that's what the devil tries to do. He tries to convince you that 
you've got to hide that sin. You've got to hide it deep down because nobody else is going to relate to that. Nobody else is going to understand what you're going through. Nobody else is going to understand that you've been tempted by this thing. But guess what? It's nothing new. It's nothing new. It's lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It's, it's the same thing that he's been doing for centuries and generations. The worst thing that you can do as a Christian person is to just keep all of that to yourself. I'm not saying that we walk around with a sign on us that says, I'm an adulterer, I'm a, you know, whatever. That's not the idea that we go around uh, showing everyone our private life. But when we do, don't use the power of confession with one another, with someone that has spiritual authority in our life, and we go to them and you say, I'm struggling, I need help. What if Eve would have paused for just a second and looked at Adam and said, is this right? Is this really what we're supposed to be doing? Maybe the two of them could have worked together to be able to put Satan aside. So there's nothing new under the sun. If that's the case, then we have everything that we need in the Bible in order to help us. Several years ago, um, it was May 17, 2014 to be exact. I remember the day very well. I was in the car. I was riding with my wife. We were on our way from Nashville to Gatlinburg to spend a few days away for our 20th anniversary. And as often is the case when you finally have moments without kids in the car and it's quiet, you begin to talk about things in life. And that very uh, week before that, I had uh, finally gotten my, my, black, uh, my green belt in Six Sigma, which is uh, not important, but it was, it was an accomplishment in work that I had done. And so I was talking to Gail about that, and I was excited about it. And she asked me a question, you know, the kind of question that wives ask husbands and you don't really want to, them to ask because, you know, it's uncomfortable. She said, when are you going to get your master's degree? And I said, well, you know, we've got a lot going on in life and, you know, it's really busy and it would mean a lot of time away. And I just, you know, began to list all of these wonderful reasons why I had not uh, pursued that particular thing. And so we're driving and I thought, you know, hey, she's forgotten about it. No worries. You know, it's, it's, she took all my excuses and she's, you know, weighed them as being wisdom. And so, you know, we're good. And probably a hundred miles had gone by and all of a sudden she's like, I want you to do it. And I was like, do what? I mean, I'm thinking about food by now. <laughs> I've way moved past the master's program. And I was like, what do you want me to do? And she said, I want you to get your master's. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to. She's like, no, I want you to, when we get back from this trip, I want you to figure out what it's going to take, and I want you to get your master's. I'm like, okay. So I got back, and I started to check into things. Well, the first thing I had to do was take a test called the GMAT. And I got a, a, stu a, a study test, uh, a practice test, and I took the GMAT, and I scored so low that I said to myself, graduate school is not my biggest problem here. I need to go back to high school. <laughs> and so I, I went out and I got a book that was about this thick that was studying and preparing for the GMAT. And I enlisted my children to help me <laughs> with this. My, my uh, senior in high school was helping me with the math because you forget stuff. And I, I felt like, you know, that that comedian says, I don't know nothing. Uh, and, and, I, and I really, I felt like I didn't. But after going through that book, it points out the the tricks of how to take the test. And it says, when you're reading it, don't get bogged down in, in the overall whole thing. You look for this and look for that. And if, if the question says this, this is what it's really looking for. 
And I figured out that if I just read the tips and the tricks and the secrets part of this big, thick book, that I was going to learn a whole lot more than I would by trying to remember how to do all the geometry and, and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I just I spent about two weeks looking through the tips and the tricks. And sure enough, I went and took the GMAT, and I scored about 300 points higher than I did on the practice test. And I got into graduate school. But the point is that being prepared and understanding what you're going to face is half the battle. And so the second point this morning is it helps to be prepared. I want to go back to Genesis 2 again. You're going to have this scripture memorized before we leave here this morning. And in verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from the tree of uh, any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay? So that was the rule. That was the, the word from God to Adam. We have it in quotes. We know that God said it. So that was exactly what he said. Now fast forward to chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. So when the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the tree in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Who said anything about touching it? God never said don't touch it. He said don't eat it. And so the serpent convinces her to take it, and when she touches it and she doesn't die, she must like, hey, this serpent must be right. I didn't die because she had not been prepared for understanding what the real quote from God was. And who had heard the real quote? The dude standing right next to her. The first deadbeat husband right there, not doing what he was supposed to be doing. He didn't say, Eve, that's not what he said. Don't touch it. He said, don't eat it. And so he, she was not prepared. You look at what Jesus was doing right before he was tempted. He was fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights. He was in a time of preparation. This time of Lent that we are in right now, also 40 days and 40 nights. 40 is a very important number in the Bible. Uh, when the flood came on the, the earth, it rained for 40 days and for 40 nights. When Moses' uh, life is broken down, he spent 40 years living in Egypt, 40 years living in Midian, and 40 years wandering in the wilderness. 40 is a very important number. It's a number of preparation. The, the children of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years before going and crossing the Jordan and taking Jericho. Could they have done it the very first day they left Egypt? Absolutely. Were they ready? Absolutely not. And so God knew that. So for Jesus, he knew that he was going to face a temptation and he needed to be prepared. And he went into the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. Now, I don't know what you do when you're fasting, but I think a lot about food. And eventually, then at some point in time, you get to a point where you're not quite as hungry as you were. I don't know what it's like to go 40 days. I've gone 30 hours without food, and I thought that was just like, you know, longer than anyone ought to have to have to be. But Jesus went 40 days and 40 nights. And as the tempter finally did come to him, he came to him at a time where he was ready to come up with scripture out of his mouth. He knew the word of life. He knew that scripture. He was ready. He was prepared. And so this time of Lent that we're in right now, hopefully you're not going to face the devil himself in the form of three temptations. But if you do, Hopefully after today, you'll know which Adam to identify with. You'll know which Adam to align yourself with, and you'll know how to defeat the enemy, that there's nothing new under the sun, and that you, you just have to be prepared.
But the best part about all of this is that we're not alone in the fight. We have Jesus. That's point number three in your notes. We have Jesus. See, Jesus was able to be prepared for that fight because guess what? He was around to watch Adam fail in the garden. Because in John 1, we read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through Him was all, were all things created, and nothing was created without Him. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among them. We're talking about Jesus. Jesus was there. Jesus was there at the beginning. Jesus was the Word spoken that created all things. Jesus was there to see the fact that Adam was not prepared, that Adam didn't know how to defeat the temptations that would come. And Jesus was then able to know exactly what to say and what to do when he was tempted on that day thousands of years later. See, Jesus knows the playbook. He's read the Prepare Yourself for Temptation handbook. He knows all the secrets. He's ready to help you. When Jesus left this earth, he said, Fear not, for I am not leaving you alone. I'm sending one after me that will indwell in you. It is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit lives within us and helps us to be able to fight temptation, helps us to be able to recall Scripture when we need it. Now, it means we have to have read it once to start with, at least, in order to be able to recall it. But the Holy Spirit can guide us and direct us. You know, in Sunday school, anytime the teacher asks a question, it's always a safe bet to just answer Jesus because that's, most of the time that's the answer to give. But in this particular case, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer that we have when we are in a situation that we don't know what to do. When we accept Jesus as our Savior, we have him on our side. I want us to go one more time to the Scripture, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to start halfway through verse 44. And it says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so were those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, this is the most important part, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. God said there was an Adam, and there was a second Adam. There was a natural man, and there was a spiritual man. And just as you are born as a natural man, and you bear the same corruption and the same downfall that Adam had in the world of sin, and we can't get past that. We, no matter how hard we try, when we're born, we're going to sin. That came into the world. It's just a fact. It's a state of, of the universe. But the last phrase in that verse, that's the, the part that works out for all of us so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. We can put on the image of Jesus. We have Jesus on our side. We have him in our corner. He's our coach. He's, he's read the, the answer book. He's ready to feed us the answers and tell us exactly what we need. We just have to be ready to, to call on him and to ask him to help us in our life. We have to be ready to acknowledge that there's nothing new under the sun, that there's no new temptation, that we're just like everybody else in that sense. And that we need to be prepared. We need to do our part. We need to study the scripture. We need to pray. We need to be ready. And uh, in this time of Lent, if it's giving something up or, or laying something down, 
Don't just let that time sit idle or fill it with something else that's useless. Fill it with time to study the Word of God and be prepared. And then finally, remember that we have Jesus. We have the answer. We have the ultimate answer. If you've been wondering what decision to make related to Jesus, I hope the answer is quite simple. He's the author of the book. He's the one who wrote the truth. He is the life. He is the light. He is the one way. For me, I choose to have the second Adam. When that question is asked, which Adam? For me, it's the second, because I want Jesus in my life. I would ask that you would all stand, please, at this time.